Brian Lair Show on WNYC. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Bridget Bergen, filling in for Brian today. Fans of public radio will probably recognize the voice of our next guest. For nearly three decades, Nell Greenfield Voice has been NPR's science desk correspondent. During that time, she's reported from inside a space shuttle, the bottom of a coal mine, and the control room of a, particul- of a particle collider. And her topics are pretty much what you'd expect from an excellent science journalist. She reported news on the color of dinosaur eggs, ice worms that live on mountaintop glaciers, and signs of life on Venus. Now, she's reporting on some things you might not expect, her personal life. In her new book, Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life, she shares intimate essays of her life and how reporting on science helps her navigate it. Nell Greenfield-Boyce joins us now. Welcome to WNYC. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm so excited to do this. And we're so excited to have you. And listeners, we know there are fans of Nell Greenfield-Boyce out there listening. We invite you. Give us a call. Share what you like about her work or anyone else. Maybe there is a science story that you've heard that's helped shape your understanding of your own personal experiences or maybe given you a different perspective. Maybe you've gone down a rabbit hole on this subject that you realized helped you during a challenging time. Or maybe like Nell, what you do for work helps the way you approach life events. Share your story with us. Give us a call now. The number 212-433-WNYC. That's 212-433-9692. You can, can also tweet us at that number. Again, 212-433-9692. And Nell, your book is a collection of essays that are a combination of your personal life events and kind of what you do for work, extended metaphors about natural phenomena that are woven throughout each chapter. In one chapter, you write about the end of your aging father's life and about meteorites. And you tell the story of the NASA scientist who had the idea to put a piece of the moon in a museum and let everyone touch it. Can you tell us about how that happened? Sure. So that was an unusual situation. That was um, a geologist who worked with the Apollo program, later became involved with the um, creation of the Smithsonian's uh, National, National Air and Space Museum. And while they were working on that, he thought about this stone, this sacred stone in Mecca called the Black Stone, which is venerated by pilgrims who sort of point to it or try to touch it. It's associated with um, Muhammad. And so it's very sacred. And so mm-hmm. as he was thinking about this from something in his own life, he got the idea that maybe one of NASA's moon rocks should be put on display and people could touch it. And this proved to be super popular popular. And, you know, I thought a lot about the fact that people would line up to touch this gray rock that had this, you know, sign on top of it that says moon rock. But honestly, it just looks like a gray rock. (laughs) Like if you looked at it, you know, just you didn't know it was from the moon, you might think it was from somebody's driveway or something. And so that essay is about meteorites and it's about um, aging and and falling. Um, Meteorites fall, but also people fall as as they get older. And it's just about sort of trying to understand, you know, what the relationship is between something that's otherworldly and something that's more mundane. And does it really make a difference? And so it's just like one of these examples in these essays of how I try to take 
personal things that I've experienced that are in some ways pretty ordinary things, you know, sure. like comforting a child or a parent getting older, and combine them with different kinds of science that you might not think are relevant, but actually are kind of, you know, metaphorically resonant or interesting. Um, so there's stuff in the book about tornadoes and about fleas and about, you know, black holes, <laughs> and it, it's all mixed in with personal narrative. Well, I, I want to stay on the topic of uh, these meteorites for a moment to touch on a story about your father. Um, you write about how you gave a piece of a lunar meteorite to uh, your father, but you're not really sure if he or your mother appreciated it. Can you tell us a bit about the gift and, and why meteorites in particular are important to you? So I'm wearing a meteorite right now. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, have a, I have a necklace made of a meteorite. And I love them because they're just they're just rocks. You know, they look like any rock you could pick up, but they're special because they came from somewhere else. And yeah, I did give my dad a meteorite, um, a lunar meteorite. There's some meteorites or pieces of the moon that got like, you know, knocked off the moon and end up on Earth. And, um, you know, was, he's hard to shop for. <laughs> you know, like many people, you Sounds know. Sounds like my like, dad. Exactly. I think people have had that experience. But, you know, it was funny later that piece of moon rock ended up in a kitchen uh, drawer uh, just with like the scissors and the pens and my mother was completely perplexed by it she like <laughs> showed it to me and she's like you know do you have any idea what this is and I was like it's a piece of the moon <laughs> yeah. it's literally a piece of the moon you know but but that essay is about um it's about falling it's about getting older and falling and you know as people get older, they start to fall. And um, so do meteorites. And hmm. and the title of the book, um, Transient and Strange, actually comes from a Walt Whitman poem, um, His Leaves of Grass, where he's writing about meteorites. And he's saying, you know, year of comets and meteors, transient and strange. But then he says, you know, look here, there's someone equally transient and strange. Like, as I flit through you hastily, soon to fall and be gone. What is this book? What am I myself but one of your meteors? So... You know, it's just like in these essays, I tried to mix a whole bunch of stuff, almost like an experiment. You know, you've got a yeah. laboratory beaker and you throw in, you know, poetry and personal experience and history of science and it burbles up and interesting things come out. Mm. Well, I love this idea of the experiment. And so I want to tease out some of the other stories uh, from the memoir. Uh, speaking of your kids, uh, I understand when you told your daughter that she was uh, part of the universe, she didn't really buy it, did she? No, no. She just told me flatly, you're wrong. I'm not part of the universe. <laughs> she said, I'm in the universe. I'm not part of the universe. And huh. I told her, like, feeling all wise, I was like, well, you can be in it and part of it, just like, you know, your heart is inside of you and it's also part of you. And she was three years old and she was just like, no, you're wrong. That's not how it is. And I think a lot of us have this feeling that we are somehow separate and we move through the universe observing it and we are not part of it. Um, and that feeling of separation from from the natural world and also from other people and even sometimes from yourself is something that I explore a lot in this book. I mean, it's it's hard to understand that we are just as magical as, you know, a black hole, but we, we truly are. And, um, you know, I love science and I love uh, learning about science. But to me, it's not something distant or removed. It, to me, it's very personal and it's very intertwined with the rest of life because scientists are just trying to figure out the universe just like a little kid is and just like we are and, and you know, just like poets are. And it's all part of one big human project. Mm. Um now, in that same chapter, you write about this concept of uniform uniformitarianism. Yeah, it's uh, a fun word to say. <laughs> it is a fun one. I, I even broke it up for myself so I wouldn't butcher it the way I just did. But uh, 
It means the notion that natural laws and processes at work today are at work everywhere in the universe and that they have operated in the past the same way they do today and will in the future. Can you explain that a bit more? How do you see the history of science resonating in your life? So, so that idea that, that the universal laws were acting now the way they had in the past and the way they would continue to act, and that they act here on Earth just as they do everywhere else, whether it's Mars or Pluto or, or whatever, I mean, that was a really radical idea fairly recently. Like when people believed in, well, many people still do, but back when even scientists took the biblical story of creation to be the literal truth, the idea that the world has been unchanging and that everything's been acting in the same way everywhere for all time, that geology is, you know, without a beginning and without an end, that was a really, really radical idea. But to me, it's a really powerful idea because it suggests that the same stuff working on us is working on everything. It's just part of us being, you know, right there with it, like right there in the mix, um, not in a remove, not in a distance, but um, very closely, closely related. And I see, you know, a lot of the things scientists do as a very human activity. And I love reading about the history of science because so many of the people in it are so relatable and um, they're funny and they have mm. like, you know, weird, weird uh, interests that they pursue. And as a result, they find out things that are beautiful. Listeners, we would love to hear some of your stories about how science uh, has informed some of the stories of your life. What have you experienced um, through learning about science? How has it shaped how you um, experience the world? Uh, Maybe you've gone down some black holes on certain scientific topics during challenging times. Maybe you've been confronted, I know I have, by questions from your children about certain scientific concepts and and perhaps realize the limit of your scientific knowledge. Um, Give us a call, the number 212-433-WNYC. That's 212-433-9692. You can also tweet at that number. Um, And Nell, I want to talk about this idea um, that your son uh, was obsessed with tornadoes um, and how the more he learned, the more scared he got, but that you also dug into the history of tornado science at the same time. Can you tell us a little bit more about that history and how you and your kids were learning about it at the same time? Sure. So my kids, when they were about six and three, asked me what a tornado was. And foolishly, I was excited to show them what a tornado was because I think tornadoes are really cool. But I sort of blanked on the most important part about a tornado, which is that it devastates everything in its path. And so my children became very scared and quite obsessed with tornadoes and began to be afraid every night before they went to sleep that they would be blown apart by a tornado. Now, we live in Washington, D.C., which is not a very tornado prone part of the country. Nonetheless, it was a big issue in our family for quite a while. And so we learned so much about tornadoes and so much about tornado science is fascinating. And I learned all sorts of weird facts and and our whole family did. But to me, you know, none of it was reassuring because like what was happening is that they were children learning that the threat of your life being transformed and, and things just going seriously wrong is kind of ever present. And, you know, young children haven't quite learned that that's the case. And they haven't learned that somehow you just have to go on with life with that knowledge and pretend it's not there and somehow live your life like that. And so to me, it's just an example of how, you know, 
children sometimes force you to confront some of the questions that you as an adult can pretend aren't out there. And also, like, you have to try to figure out, like, well, what, you know, I'm middle-aged and I don't think I've really dealt with this issue. Sure. (laughs) And so, like, through tornadoes together, we were kind of trying to navigate it and, you know, trying to figure out a way, like, what am I going to say to them about how how to live like this? And so, you know, that's just another example of how, you know, personal things got mixed in with, you know, poetry and history and um, you know, there's a lot of very interesting um, history of tornado science, and there's still so many mysteries about tornadoes that scientists don't understand. Well, I want to bring uh, a caller, Ellen, in Manhattan on the air. Ellen, I believe you are a poet. Is that right? Yes, I write poetry. <laughs> I guess that qualifies me. Uh, and I just wanted to say that, you know, I write a lot about the universe. I, I think about it a lot. And the realities that that we have encountered through the telescopes that we sent out into space have really, you know, kind of brought reality closer to home and made my poems, made me rethink how I want to view the universe. Do I want to really see it as, you know, like the moon is blue cheese or and, and write poetry about how nice the blue is? Or do I want to try to, you know, combine the fact that we're learning so much about the universe in a scientific way uh, in my poems, and I, I tend to be a realist, so that latter is the one that appeals to me. Mm. So that it really has uh, changed, you know, some of the poems themselves and how I view writing about the universe. That's so interesting, Ellen. Thank you so much for that call. Now, a- any reaction to that? It it feels like um, your kindred spirits there. Well, I think that the reality of the universe is plenty beautiful right on its own, right? I mean, it is it is truly remarkable. And scientists think it's beautiful. You know, I've talked to scientists who told me that some of the things they've seen, you know, through the new James Webb Space Telescope, for example, made them cry. You know, they'll say to me, like, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And, um, you know, it's that kind of emotional connection that I feel very deeply. You know, a lot of the stuff in this memoir is very ordinary stuff, stuff that that people have experienced, whether it's, you know, comforting a child or getting hit on by some older guy or whatever. But for me, I just experienced it as someone who thinks a lot about science and who spent a lot of time reading about science. And so the metaphors that I reach for is are scientific, but that doesn't mean that they're somehow, you know, um, like like boring or uh, sort of like empty or like spare or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just full of human human experience and joy. Let's go to Terry in Northern Westchester. Terry, you're on WNYC. Uh, yes, good morning. Um, I was uh, saying that um, in the uh, well, the late 70s to uh, early and mid-80s, um, I was a graduate student in psychobiology, specifically in animal behavior. And in the uh, summer seasons, I was doing uh, field, field work uh, uh, initially on... Uh, uh, bird behavior and then uh, on fiddler crabs and uh, uh, originally my my husband was interested in having children and I was very much on the fence about it but after all those seasons of my field work and watching all the difficult things that various species of animals had to do to attract a mate and then bring up their offspring I 
kind of uh, looked at myself and said, and after all this, I'm not even going to try to have children. So I changed my mind and uh, ended up uh, having a, a child. It happened a little earlier than I anticipated. I got <laughs> pregnant uh, pretty pretty quickly. And in uh, in all that happening, I kind of got derailed from my dissertation, but I looked at it as intensive field work in human maternal behavior. <laughs> Terry, thank you so much for that story. Nell, any reaction to that? I think that's lovely. And I think that, you know, children, it's kind of a cliche to say it, but children are amazing scientists. They are absolutely fearless. They have no preconceptions. They'll just like, you know, take something apart and they'll get all down into the muck to try to understand how things work. And I do think that observing the natural world can be very revealing. And, you know, sometimes I like one of the essays is about fleas. And before I wrote this book, if you told me if I had any feelings about fleas, I would have said no. But I was addressing something that Herman Mel Melville said in Moby Dick, he was saying that to to write a mighty book, you have to have a mighty theme. And he said, no one could ever write a great and enduring volume on the flea. And I (laughs) thought, well, that's awfully mean because fleas are quite interesting. And so the more I learned about them, the more I learned that they have inspired people for all kinds of things, for thinking about infinity and thinking about romance. There was this whole line of uh, love poetry that involved fleas. And, um, you know, so people (laughs) look at the natural world and they see themselves but they also see new ways of being. And I think that's really um, beautiful. And it's something that people have done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. And it's just like part, we're part of it. We're part right. of the history of science. And in our own lives, we, we live it out. Nell, we have a question that came from a listener via text. Uh, the listener writes, I'm an English professor. A few semesters ago, I was teaching Darwin for a class on literature and nature. I had a student who refused to read him because he, the student, believed in creationism. I couldn't get through with any arguments, like just read it as literature. How do you deal with this? It's an interesting question, and I think it's one um, that's you know, people have dealt with for a long time. I often get asked about how to handle uh, sort of disbelief in science, how to handle misinformation. And all I can say is that the whole time I've been a science reporter, this has been around. And yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I, you know, I read the Bible and I derive a lot from it and I find it to be a beautiful, beautiful work um, that has all kinds of meaning and significance. And so, um, you know, I can't understand why somebody wouldn't want to even and read, although perhaps, you know, their deeply held beliefs um, lead them in that direction. And I, I have to respect that. Um, you know, people are trying to make sense of the world and they're doing it in all kinds of ways. And I feel like all we can do is try to meet people where they are and share our point of view and, you know, try to understand where they're coming from as well. Hmm. Um, we're going to go to Peter in Tampa Bay, Florida. Uh, before we move off of the uh, tornado topic, Peter, you're on WNYC. Oh, sure, sure. I was going to say, go to my website and buy anti-gravity boots. That person who doesn't believe in science, I got a great buy on anti-gravity boots. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I highly recommend uh, science. Tornado, this is something, uh, Nell, that I thought, a great way to teaching to kids. You're looking at tornadoes in the northern hemisphere. They always go counterclockwise. Southern hemisphere, clockwise. And you can explain, it's like, well, it's the rotation of of the Earth, and because it's wider and spins faster at the equator, and it's, you can understand it. But what also I think is cool to to observe is that 
that water going down your bathtub and the drain, it goes in the same direction in the northern hemisphere and in the southern hemisphere because the same forces that act on the tornado are acting on that water going down your bathtub drain. Uh, do you ever point out things like that when, when you want to teach things to kids or have, just have a, oh, my God, I never noticed that. That makes sense. Yeah, my kids are not very impressed with my scientific knowledge. <laughs> you know, if I try to, I, mostly around my children, I try to keep my mouth shut, to be honest, because it, to me, it seems kind of unfair. You know, I'm 50 years old and I've been accumulating facts. I could spout off facts on almost anything. And so, you know, I, I mostly try to let my children approach things um, just on their own. And then, sure. you know, I, I love seeing how they react to things because it's, it's quite different. But I do think that, um, you know, you know, lots of parents uh, will take their kids to natural history museums or to zoos and stuff like that. And, you know, supposedly it's for the edification of children. But my experience is the adults are like right there in there. <laughs> they Absolutely. love to see it. They love to see, you know, leaf cutter ants at work or whatever. Um, and, you know, people are just curious. People are curious about the world. And, and I, I find that NPR listeners especially, you know, they're quite happy to learn about stuff that has no applicable use in their lives, but is just like something interesting about the world. And I I'm extremely grateful for that and feel honored that I get the chance to find out some of this stuff and and share it with them. Nell, I want to dive back into some of what you share in this memoir. Um, In one essay, you write about a a pretty shocking memory from your childhood. You talk about how when you were a girl, you, you picked up a phone call from a man who told you he kidnapped your mother and then made you say sexually explicit things to him. You later described that experience as, quote, a natural disaster. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I included that in the tornado essay because, um, you know, my kids were worried about tornadoes. And I, you know, I was thinking about, you know, the way that you can just be in your house living your life and then something will happen that just sort of like blows normal life away. And um, that was a very strange phone call um, back in the 1980s. It was very hard for me to explain to other people the effect that that had on me because it was just a phone call. It was just, you know, there wasn't anybody there in the house. But but it was quite terrifying because I believed it. And, um, and it had a long-term effect on me, I would say. And these days, sometimes I read about people being hoaxed, um, you know, social media things. People will get information off Facebook and about college students and call their parents and claim to have kids them and stuff. So these days, you know, when I read about that, I'm like, I totally understand how they feel. But for me at the time, as a as an adolescent kid, it was just unbelievable. It just had such an effect on me. And to me, that is why I put it in the tornado essay. Some people would say it's not as bad as a tornado coming. I mean, people die from tornadoes. And I, I totally get that. And I, I understand that and respect that. But to me, it was just an example of how the reality of the world is that things can happen that you are not anticipating that can totally transform your life in an instant. And, you know, as a parent, you try to protect your child, but you can't protect your child from everything. And at a certain point, you know, they have to figure out how to live. And and all you can do is try to help them the best you can and be an example of how to live despite all that uncertainty. So, yeah, in, in the book, I talk a lot about a 
personal personal things like you know my husband and I deciding to have children and you know events that are kind of unseemly and and some people ask me like aren't you uncomfortable being like this this open about this stuff and I have been a reporter for a long time and I've remained pretty anonymous and reporters generally try not to talk about themselves but for me it, it was it was interesting to to explore all this and sure. I I hope that some people find it relatable in another chapter you write my childhood happened just as the science of black holes began to grow and mature my coming of age was entangled with its coming of age i love that but what did it mean for you so that essay is called a very charming young black hole and that's uh when i was 12 i had this weird flirtation with a much older man (laughs) that was sort of based around science and uh we talked about black holes and that's where it came from and i was using black holes as a sort of metaphor there um but also talking about the history of the term black hole and where it comes from and some of the things that around the the origin of that that are a little um strange that people may not be familiar with but yeah you know when i up um black holes you know it we all assume black holes exist now and even school children understand what a black hole is but you know in the 1960s that was not true it was just a theory spun by pure math and nobody had any examples of a black hole and some people didn't take it very seriously they thought it was you know not real physics um and so that essay i explore the development of black holes and the history of black holes but i also talk about you know this this strange interaction with this man and and you know as a young child um a young girl uh you know there is this sort of bewildering attraction that you have to um to men that is um unexpected and and can be disturbing and and so to me the black hole was a way of of exploring Mm. all that um that that i think you know i don't know i don't know if it worked or not people have to make up their own minds but to me (laughs) i i found it um resonant Um, I want to read a text we received now. Uh, The listener writes, Right on, Nell Greenfield Boyce. As a college student, I spend summers teaching physics and how airplanes fly to middle school students from underserved urban areas on the West Coast. An awesome experience that made real for me the importance of making complex science understandable in a relatable way that anybody can get. Ms. Boyce nails that communicating science in a very human way that shows how it's a wondrous and tangible part of everyday life, all while elevating our grasp of nature and its beauty. Thank you for educating and making us better humans and keep on. So a, a, a fan, little fan letter via text for you, Nell. That's uh, very kind. <laughs> and I want to go next to Anne in Staten Island. Anne, you're on WNYC. Yes, good morning. I'm so happy to hear this fascinating conversation because I call myself a serious amateur geologist, (laughs) although my career was 35 years in the New York City public schools as an English teacher. But I always managed to integrate some aspects of this world we live in because that was a book my parents gave me when I was a child. And when I opened it up as a Christmas present, it had a timeline, which was one of the most amazing things. And there was no contradiction at all from my uh, parents teaching me in terms of biblical stories and uh, creation. So my suggestion, I'm 76 now, and my suggestion is to parents, just teach your children to look. you're, You're walking, for example, the ferry. That's a magnificent canyon that we cross. What is it, five miles, I think, across 
to um, South, you know, um, you know Manhattan, to Staten Island. Manhattan. Yeah, and so many things are right here. I went to the Grand Canyon years ago for my 60th birthday. That was my celebration. And I cried. I was on the North Rim because the South Rim has a lot more tourists. So I was on the North Rim with my son. And one of the docents came over and said, is this lady all right? Does she need medical help? And he said, no, she's emotional. I was sobbing at the beauty of the Grand Canyon. And I think this can be um, inculcated in young people Hmm. if they're taught to look. And I live on Staten Island. I mean, this was formed when Africa crashed you know, millions of years ago, when we have Serpent tonight on Staten Island, I have it in my yard. It's not the um, the ones that, you know, it's anhydrous. It doesn't have all these dangerous things. <laughs> but um, I recommend it. They were great, great. I have a minor in geology. But and I, I, I love your enthusiasm, and we so appreciate it. I want to give Nell a chance uh, to respond to our serious amateur geologist uh, who spent her time teaching English in the New York City Public Schools, um, certainly someone who is passionate about um, observing the world around her. I also love geology, and I think rocks don't get their due. <laughs> People think they're boring. Um, but I, I also agree that, you know, there's tons of stuff to look at. You know, there's there's exciting stuff that, like the uh, total solar eclipse that's coming up um, April 8th. I think if people are able to travel to see that, they totally should. Um, but also just, you know, everyday stuff, like you don't have to be fancy. Like some of the, the building materials, uh, sometimes you can see little fossils in the, the stones on the side of buildings. And, you know, just even the stuff growing in sidewalk cracks can be can be really interesting. Mm. Uh, Nell, I have a few more questions about the memoir. Your final essay in the book, My Eugenics Project, is about how you and your husband arrived at the decision to have your children trying it first through IVF. But even having kids was complicated by the fact that your husband has a genetic condition. Can you tell us a bit of that story and, and how it informed your thoughts on medicine? Sure. So um, my husband has a uh, hereditary kidney disease called polycystic kidney disease, and it basically makes your kidneys form cysts until they stop working. And so my husband had a kidney transplant. And so uh, it's a genetic disease. And so the chance of passing it on is like 50-50. And so when we were having children, we were discussing whether we were going to try to do various kinds of testing to try to avoid passing on the disease. And so this became a big issue in our marriage. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. my husband who lived with the disease didn't see any reason to do anything dramatic to uh, avoid it. I, you know, did not live my life counting down the days till total kidney failure. And to me, it seemed like something we should try to avoid if we could. And so the essay is a a pretty detailed description of our discussions about that and what we did and the twists and turns it took. And the whole thing is informed by what I know about the history of um, human genetics in this country and the birth of genetic counseling and the links that it all has to eugenics. And eugenics, obviously, you know, people associate it with the Nazis, but eugenics was very much a dark chapter in American history. And, you know, tens of thousands of people were forcibly sterilized and um, the so-called science of eugenics was used to discriminate against um, poor people and people who were not white. And so, you know, I 
as I personally went through this personal experience, um, I was reflecting a lot on the ties to this history. And so, you know, for me, it was a, a very sort of fraught time in my life. But for me, I couldn't take it in isolation. It was very much tied to these other things that had happened. And I felt like by writing about this, I could maybe, um, you know, shed some light on some of these conversations that are often happening very privately. Um, people often don't talk about this stuff. And um, if they do talk about it, maybe, um, you know, they they either are very against it or very for it. And, you know, I wanted to explore a lot of the ambiguities because I, I went through a lot of different ways of looking at things. <laughs> and, you know, maybe in that essay, I don't always come out looking so great, I got to be honest. But I tried to be um, as, as remember it as clearly as I could and just recount everything as clearly as I could and think hard about in what ways it was and wasn't connected to this really awful history, which I think, you know, more Americans should know about. It was a really ugly chapter. Absolutely. Um, Nell, in our final question, you mentioned this, that the title of your book comes from a Walt Whitman poem. Um, you want to tell us a little bit more about, about what you think of poetry in this poem in particular and what it has in common with the scientific method, which is something you often report on. I think poetry is related to the scientific method in that both are experimental. Um, you know, both are sort of probing at the world and they're often operating within constraints, whether it's a poetic form in poetry or whether it's, um, you know, sort of a, an experimental setup with controls in science. But even though they seem quite different, they arise from the same human urge to try to understand, to try to grasp something that might otherwise go unobserved or unremarked on. And so for me, as a, as a person and as a writer, um, poetry and literature and sort of universal themes always informs what I do, not just in these essays, but even in the short um, news pieces I do for, you know, the All Things Considered and Morning Edition. I'm always trying to think about what is the universal theme that might draw someone to this, even if they're not necessarily interested in science per se, but they're interested in people and they're yeah. interested in making, you know, trying to make sense of it all. And, and, and in that, we're all together, regardless of whether you think you like science or not. Mm. Well, we're going to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for your work, for your new memoir. My guest has been NPR science correspondent Nell Greenfield-Boyce. Her new book is titled Transient and Strange, Notes on the Science of Life. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you.